Good evening and welcome to another edition of BAMS Radio. With the NFL Draft going on pretty much throughout the entirety of our show, we're going to shift gears a little bit. We're just going to be having a best of BAMS. Drew DeArmond, one of the hosts, was kind enough to share some audio from interviews that he conducted on his show, Morning Talking Ball on 97.7 The Zone in Huntsville. So we're just going to play a few of those. It's not going to be a complete show, but there's still going to be some interesting information out there for Tide fans. The first interview is actually one that Drew conducted with Lars Anderson. He remembered the tornadoes that we just passed the five-year anniversary, and uh, we'll get going on that. We also have something from Redfish, as well as Avarian Hertz, Jalen Hertz's father. So there's plenty to look forward to, and we hope you enjoy it. Let's get rolling with that first interview. We're an honor to be joined by Lars Anderson. Lars, how are you doing this afternoon? Welcome. I'm I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This is uh, certainly a difficult day for a lot of people in the South, and... uh, you know, I've already reached out this morning to Ashley Mims, uh, Lauren Brown's mother, and uh, we've exchanged text messages, and certainly my thoughts are, are with her and everyone else whose lives was uh, tragically touched five years ago today. Absolutely, Lars. And I wanted to ask you, how have you been affected most by uh, – because, I mean, it was such a fascinating book you did, but it, ha- it was also uh, heart-wrenching, and, it, and, and I know it had to be uh, – uh, something that the story needed to be told, but it had to be tough at the same time. How has it affected you personally? Well, you know, I tell this to my students all the time, like to write with power, you need to write with emotion, and you have to then – feel the emotion that your characters are feeling and, and that the people you are interviewing feeling. And so, you know, for instance, just I spent hours and hours with Ashley you know, um, mm. uh, recounting her every step of that day and her last conversations with Lauren and, and going to the morgue and identifying Lauren. And, you know, through that, that also certainly impacts the writer. And, um, you know, for for weeks and months after the tornadoes uh, went through this part of town or this part of the country, I, like many, was, was haunted by nightmares of tornadoes. And, and um, you know, it's, it's a book that uh, I would never want to do again because it was so it was so gut-wrenching to mm-hmm. report. You know, I spent a lot of time with Shannon Brown as well. And, and, and just the honesty of Shannon and Ashley in particular is really what I think made the book come alive to readers all across the country. And, and and when I was writing it, I didn't want it to be a regional book. It's not a regional book. This is a, a national book, and in a lot of ways it's been a global book, uh, because after the publication, I heard from people as far away as Japan, um, Central America, uh, South America, just uh, how they were touched by the stories that were in the book, and most specifically... Uh, story of uh, of Lauren Brown. Yeah, and, and that uh, that story is is just was uh, amazing, and uh, the way you were able to recount it in such detail. And Hannah Stevens is with me, uh, Lars. She was a, a freshman at that time when the uh, storms hit, and it, it it's a, it, and she it had a deep effect on her. And I she's uh, I know she was wanted to uh, have a conversation with you as well. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Good to good to hear from you. You too. I think, um, you know, looking back, you know, like you said, you had haunted, you had nightmares that haunted you. I mean, I'd be honest, I still do. You know, I think the biggest thing for me today still is when the tornado sirens go off, you know, it's like you watch it on TV and it doesn't, 
you know, it, you, your mind kind of doesn't register. Because if you remember correctly with me, um, there was there was a few little tornado outbreaks, I'd call her. Like, tornadoes that happened before 427. I believe one was April 15th and uh, hit south of Skyland Boulevard. And uh, that was one of the ones that kind of people just kind of blew off. And I think that one of my personal biggest regrets was not taking that storm seriously enough. You know, kind of like... You know, you heard all on Weather Channel and James Spann saying it's going to be a huge tornado outbreak. But I think that was the biggest thing for me is not taking it seriously enough. And that's something that I really do take care of today is just making sure that myself, my family, my friends were all aware of what's going on. Can you relate to that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, on on April 27th, the first fatality was in Cahaba Heights here in Birmingham, where I live. And uh, just... You know, at the time I wasn't married. I didn't know my future wife, but we now live in a house uh, that was four houses down from where the gentleman lost his life in Cahaba Heights. Wow! And uh, there, a, a a a huge oak tree was deposited in our backyard. And so, I mean, it's very personal to me. And uh, at the time, I was an adjunct professor at Alabama, teaching one sports writing class. And so as I'm watching the horrific images of the tornado go through Tuscaloosa, I'm frankly calling, texting, tweeting at my students to make sure they're okay. And all of them were, but, you know, all of them were so deeply scarred. And for a lot of young people in particular, it was their first time they ever had to deal with the emotions surrounding death and, and, mm-hmm. and widespread destruction. And I think that's why it's so steered in, into people ages of like yourself because it, it was a, it was a, a first hor- horrible introduction into um, the, the reality of death. Yeah, I mean, I agree 100 percent with that. You, you know, like after a tornado, I remember that on campus the power went out and the the phones the phone lines were down. There was really no way to communicate with people. And my parents lived in Fultondale, which the tornado ended up going there. And so you know we couldn't communicate to each other. And also I couldn't. I was on the rowing team at the time, and I couldn't get in contact with my coach. There was just a lot of chaos. And I mean, I remember feeling the emotions of the unknown. Like that's what scared me the most is not knowing if my friends were okay, if my family was okay, if you know my teammates were alive. Because a lot of them were on 15th Street, and that's honestly where I was heading um, that night. Because my athletic trainer at the time we were having a baby shower for her that night on 15th street and i was worried that i was not going to be safe on campus in a dormitory that i wanted to go to 15th street but my ra would not let me out the building thank goodness and so i completely agree with you because i mean even though i didn't know like lauren and uh, some of the other girls directly i have a lot of friends that did and i could feel those emotions with them you know just like though your classmates you know it's just it's just some of those emotions that you cannot really prepare for in life, no matter how hard you try. Yeah, um, and, and for me, you know, when something traumatic like that happens sort of right in front of you as a writer, you want to figure out how to write about it. And I was at Sports Illustrated, and I just, you know, at first it didn't strike me as a sports story. It's a human story. But uh, upon, you know, more reflection, more thinking about it, I knew I could figure out a way to work it into the pages of SI, and I ended up writing a eight-page cover story on it, and what I did was I took just several different anecdotes of several different stories of athletes and and um, and put them into a longer narrative, and I really kind of hopscotched around, and I did that on purpose to get readers to feel of the, just the haphazard nature of the tornado, who it spares and who it doesn't spare, and um, and that that then it ended up we ended up putting Javier Arenas on the cover. Mm-hmm. And that issue ended up being the highest-selling issue in uh, in the country that year, uh, 
behind the swimsuit, of course. But um, I think that just shows you, again, the nationwide impact that this had on people. And, and, uh, and, and just to see the images of the tornado going so close to the most iconic structure in the state, Brian Denny Stadium, I think it just, you know, it just scared people to death. And, you know, I was just in um, Tel Aviv, Israel, working on a story. And uh, somebody on the streets of Tel Aviv, as I was at a coffee shop, started talking to them. And they asked me about that story because they had read it and asked me how Tuscaloosa was doing. And that just amazed me. Again, it's just hmm. the, sort of the power of the pen and also just um, how this event was seen by the entire world. And Lars, I wanted to kind of talk about Carson Tinker a little bit. Um, what a story he has been. Uh, now, uh, the, you know, he's, he's, he's built a solid NFL career uh, with the Jacksonville Jaguars. Of course, now he is married to the former Ann Bates, and uh, they, he, he has moved on with his life, but he, he's, of course, going to always be forever affected by it. And, uh, but I think he's been uh, just a, a fascinating story. Uh, about uh, of someone that's been able to help many other people uh, with the, how he handled the situation and how he was able to overcome such a, a tragic loss in his life. Yeah, absolutely. I met with Carson about two weeks after after the tornado, and um, you know he'd just recently gotten out of the hospital, and he was uh, still at that point completely shell shocked, understandably so. Oh, yes. But, I think it was through his honesty, and again, in the honesty of others, that that one made the Sports Illustrated story so powerful, and then and then the book as well. And and I'm I'm really happy for Carson. Um, it was difficult for him, I know, um, but um, you know, just the, the fact that he has been able to rebound and, and reclaim his life and become so successful and become an inspiration to others, I think, is really um, reflects very nicely on his character. And, you know, you mentioned a minute ago about sports, and, I mean, I had the pleasure of reading your Sports Illustrated article, and it was amazing. And I think as a student, I can attest for and speak for a lot of students, is that that year in particular, especially football um, and softball, like sports really had a meaning for it. Like it was, it was different, you know. Like I remember going to the first game of the season against Kent State, and myself and uh, numerous other students wore our T-Town Never Down shirts, and that – that year just was special, you know. It was like every sport, every team was playing for a meaning and a reason deeper than just winning a championship. You know, it was about uniting community and hope. And, you know, it was cool to see, like, just what the community could do and, like, root together for something more than just just a sport. Yeah, it's almost hard to remember now. But for that a brief moment in time, sort of Nick Saban and Alabama football became America's team. Certainly not America's team anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm, but uh, people, people from uh, you know New York to California were pulling for for Saban and Alabama because they knew that this was sort of sports at its best, the ability to bring the community together and uplift the community. And that and that Kent State game was very special because it was the first sort of large-scale community event in which everyone was back together again and just the the sense of, of we're, we're, we're going to have we're going to we're on our way back to a normal sense of life normal way of life and uh, i'll never forget that either and you know uh certainly it, it was almost like uh the the fates that were just worked in alabama's favor that season the way they made it into the national championship game with several upsets late in the year after losing to lsu and and um, and look, uh, that season was so magical that uh, 
that a, a uh, outfit in Hollywood has optioned the book, and they're trying to make a movie out of it. So uh, wow. hopefully we'll be seeing something on the on the big screen someday. And Lars, I wanted to ask you about that effect that that, that, that whole situation had on Nick Saban. Uh, I know that when he came to Alabama, he had never been anywhere more than five years. Many wondered how long he would stay in Tuscaloosa. In your opinion, uh, that was ironically uh, he, he, his uh, – do you do you think that that may have played a part in him rooting, putting roots down in the community? Now his entire family is pretty much in the Tuscaloosa, Alabama area, do you, uh, and Birmingham area. Do you think that that may have played a part in him, perhaps ending his career in Tuscaloosa, and of course now reaching a decade as the head football coach at Alabama? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think you could make the argument that if that tornado doesn't blow through Tuscaloosa, that Nick Saban still isn't in Tuscaloosa. Um, you know, I, I think it, it, it definitely deepened his roots in the community. And and uh, because in those, like, 24, 48 hours after the tornado, he was the, pe- he was the person that everyone in the community uh, looked to for, for leadership. And he went, he was out there, he was very visible. He, um, you know, right after, uh, on the day after April 28th at daybreak, met with Thad Turnipseed, his, uh, Turnipseed, his director of operations at the Mount Moore building, and they got in a truck and, and got, uh, they put a bunch of waters that were left over from the spring game in the back of the truck, and they went right out into 15th Street in the hardest hit area. And uh, they were stopped at first by a National Guardsman, and then they rolled down the window, and the Guardsman took one look at Saban and waved him through. And then Saban eventually got out of the truck, and um, and uh, he um, uh, started handing out waters to. Uh, at that point, it was church and rescue workers, and also just to the displaced, just people wandering around like zombies, not knowing what to do. And they saw Saban around uh, coming around, and and just one after the next, people were collapsing into his arms and telling them, uh, you know, that they had lost everything, and in some cases, including loved ones, sons and daughters, moms and dads. And, and I mean, that has an effect on someone, you know, and, and um, it was like that for him day after day after day. And, and Nick hasn't always been at ease in these little sort of one-on-one interactions. He's really good in front of a crowd, but he hasn't always been the most comfortable in these interpersonal communication type of situations. And this sort of forced him out of that shell, I believe. And, again, the thing that he did best, and it wasn't like any rousing speech, he just listened. He listened, and he let people tell their story, and that was so important. And, again, I don't think that Nick necessarily would be in Tuscaloosa if that event hadn't happened. Um, I, and I think it, it, it sort of made him a little more reflective. It made him put things in perspective. I mean, that was a big, big dose of perspective everyone got on April 27th. Well, and, um, yeah. Go ahead, Lars. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just, just going to say it's a big dose of perspective. And, and it also, I uh, can't underestimate the impact it had on Miss Terry as well. You know, that morning, uh, Nick was in, in his house with his daughter, who is a sorority sister of Ashley Harrison, Carson's girlfriend, who was missing. And the sorority sisters were you know, doing everything they could to try to locate Ashley at that time. They didn't know that she had already been picked up and was in a morgue. And so, I mean, Nick saw that, like, first thing in the morning at, like, 4.30 when he got up. And so he knew, you know, how bad it was. And then right when he went into uh, sort of cross the railroad tracks there and went went into the path of the tornado, 
you know, he'd never seen anything like it. President Obama, when he came, he remarked he's never seen anything like this, and Obama's seen a bunch, you know, and um, uh, it, was, it was it was really interesting. And, and, and just a, a side note about Obama's trip, you know, before he got on Air Force One from Washington to come down uh, to Tuscaloosa, he gave the order to kill bin Laden. And so really you could oh, argue wow. his, his, his presidency was hanging in the balance for his next term was hanging in the balance with that mission that he had just ordered. And yet Obama was, and forget about politics, what your politics are, Obama was so good at, again, interacting with people and comforting people and, and just being, being a leader. And, uh, and he was able to do that. And this is what great politicians can do. They can compartmentalize. He was able to do all that knowing that uh, the, the most important military operation of his presidency was taking place. You know, and speaking of people coming to Tuscaloosa, I think in that moment, you know, when you're when you, when I was down there just trying to help any way you could, because you know, to be honest, when you're down there, the first few days right after it happened, we I wanted to help, but we were told you can't. They're still in like they're we're still looking for people. You know, they really couldn't start doing any type of hand labor work. So when you're down there, you're just all one person. You know, I remember getting to meet some people that were, you know pretty prominent in the community and that like someone that sticks out to me is Walter Maddox you know like he was down there working as hard as anyone else and I think that you know just leaders in the community whether it's Obama or Nick Saban or Walter Maddox like they all came and helped and I think that's one thing that really helped me heal is just seeing how everyone came together you know I think Walter Maddox doesn't get enough credit for all that he's done you know he oh, um I'm, very... I'm with you I'm with you 100 percent on Walt Maddox he he did such a terrific job and not only just in the in the cleanup and literally going door to door and working with people like you know getting their power back, getting their gas back, like he he dealt with this stuff on a real micro level. And uh, you know I, I've become somewhat tight with Walt over over the years. And uh, hey, I want him to run for governor, and uh, I think he'd be a great governor. Uh, I don't know if he has aspirations to do that or not, but um, I think Walt, and also just in the, in the rebuilding of the town, it's almost like he was given a blank canvas. And he made the best of a bad situation by creating green space and really rebuilding Tuscaloosa with a vision in mind and working with different uh, city developers. And in the new Tuscaloosa, it, it, it's really blossoming and becoming a real beautiful city. Again, making the worst, making the best of a really terrible situation. Yeah, they really they have, Lars. It's been fascinating to watch Tuscaloosa change and. And uh, just what what it's becoming, and and I and I, and I now and and now Nick Saban looks like uh, as as you've said, you believe that, uh, that he put down. That's the reason he's put down roots here in Tuscaloosa. It looks like he will retire uh, as the coach of the Crimson Tide. I know things can change, but I think uh, that you you bring up great points. That that storm and that situation, it's all about you know fate and how things happen. But uh, that, that you're, I, I think you're correct. I think that's what has laid the foundation for him. Uh, to uh, stay at the University of Alabama and just and 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 talk about uh, how it's uh, basically uh, affected the city of Tuscaloosa. What, what what I was that's not the next question I had for you. It's grown so much, but what what do you think? What what's the most positive things that have come out of it? Again, I, I just think like the the sense of community and just the the pride that that people in Tuscaloosa have of of, of living there and and it's almost like what what Walt uh, was been able to do is make, make Tuscaloosa the model for other cities that have been through uh, horrors like this, the, the, a model for how to rebuild, and also a model for how to 
um, you know, respond right away uh, in search and rescue, uh, the cleanup. You know, Walt told me uh, I think they they had enough. They had the there was enough rubble mm-hmm. to fill Bryant Denny from the from the field to the top of the stadium nine times. And so mm-hmm. that that's a it gives you a sense of just the amount of destruction that's going on. And you know, and it's still it's still ongoing. Five years later, I mean, the city certainly is is fully not recovered yet. But um, I do know that uh, that Walt has talked to other mayors uh, across the country that have that have endured natural disasters, and uh, and they really do look to Tuscaloosa as sort of the model for for how to how to address all the the, the myriad problems that that exist in the wake of a natural disaster. You know, I completely agree with your agree with your statement how people have just modeled after Tuscaloosa because I remember several tornadoes in Oklahoma. And I remember people even making comments just like in articles and stuff saying like, hey, like we saw how the country can respond. And people even outboard, they said, hey, we helped in Tuscaloosa. And even like I helped with the tornado recovery in um, Kimberly, Alabama, when they had a really big tornado run through there. Just because I saw firsthand what it was like when people came and helped and how that really inspired me to want to help other people. And so that's going off the next point, you know. When I go back to Tuscaloosa now and you're riding down 15th Street, I mean, it's just completely rebuilt in ways that it, I can't even fathom. You know, like they have Aldi and Dick's Sporting Good and all these housing facilities and stuff. But I think one thing that just shows is that even though Tuscaloosa is being rebuilt, that's going to be something that always sticks with Tuscaloosa. And I think it's going to be an important key in just keeping Tuscaloosa's community was. Even though it was a tragic situation, I think it helped grow people in ways that they wouldn't have grown otherwise. Yeah, I, I'm with you uh, 100% on that, and um, you know, I still uh, I do different talks around the country, and I always reference this this story. It's it's it was by far the most impactful piece I've ever written uh, of my six books. Uh, the the storm and the tide was the most important, not only because it was in my backyard, but also just the, the emotion that pours forth and. And I wanted just to get it documented, you know, for people to be able to read, you know, 10, 15 years down the road, because it's, it's really a part of, of Tuscaloosa's history. And I think there's a lot to be proud of, just uh, the way, especially just the way the community rallied around. And also just, and, and, and again, like, not to belabor the point, but it, it, it reminded us of why sports can be so beautiful and, and really can give, I mean, you know, you always hear like, oh, it's just it gives you a diversion. Well, you know what? With Alabama fans, it's, Crimson Tide is not a diversion. It's a way of life. And, and the fact, and so the, the, the fan dynamic is different here than anywhere else in the country. And the, and the fact that the team was able to respond the way they did, given the amount of pressure that they knew that they were under because they, were, they really were playing for, honestly, not just themselves, but for this enormously uh, large fan base that was so desperate for uh, something to feel really good about. Uh, it's just a remarkable season, and I think it really, you know, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, it should be remembered as perhaps the most the, the, the most special season in, in Alabama history. Absolutely, and that's a great. Uh, I completely agree, Lars. Uh, I think it really is going to be, uh, when you look back on Nick Saban's tenure and the University of Alabama, uh, I, I think it will be uh, the, the, the most special season in Crimson Tide history, really, and in Nick Saban's tenure in Tuscaloosa. We really appreciate the time today on this. Uh, I know it's a, it's, a, it's a special day in a lot of ways, but it's also a day, a, and a day of remembrance, but it's also a sad day because of those who uh, lost their lives and uh, 
and uh, you know, especially Lauren Brown, and of course um, uh, Carson Tinker's girlfriend uh, Ashley Harrison. That it was just so sad, but there was so, so much good that also came out of it. And it was an outstanding book you wrote, "The Storm and the Tide." And we thank you for coming on with us and having uh, and, and sharing your remembrances. This has been fascinating and really great conversation. Thank you. Our next interview during this uh, special BAMS radio while the draft is going on is actually going to be from Avarian Hertz, Jalen Hertz's father. He'll provide a little insight into his son and what he sees for the Alabama football team coming up soon. Coach Hertz, how are you doing this morning, sir? Fine, thank you, sir. How are you? Doing well, and I want to thank you for joining us again and taking the time out of your busy schedule. And uh, I, I wanted to uh, see if I was correct. Or did you just finish your 10th season at Channel View? Yes, sir. Okay, you've been there for a decade, a, a Channel View graduate. And, of course, we you had updated us on uh, and told us about this, the outstanding start Jalen got off to uh, during his senior season. I guess for the listeners, first of all, uh, just kind of wrap up how that season uh, un- unfolded for you. And I know you guys are in a tremendously tough district over there. Yes, sir. We, uh, we're in a district with uh, the eventual uh, 6A Division One state champion, so. <laughs> You know, it's a pretty tough district, and, you know, each week is a dogfight, very competitive, and, you know, our kids play hard, and, was, you know, that was actually one of the games that we let get away, but, you know, they're a great team, but we played well, but, you know, we had a good run, um, you know, we made the playoffs for the first time in over 20 years, so that was a great deal, uh, and it was our goal coming in, and so we were just fortunate to be able to achieve it, uh, we didn't get to, you know, play as long, because we ran into some teams that really had some good players, and, you know, they kind of, we had a rough outing, but, you know, we were able to get there and, you know, compete. Absolutely, Coach. And and uh, what, uh, I, you may not have him in front of you exactly, but what kind of year overall did you feel like Jalen had for you? You know, he had a, you know, he had a, he had a really good year. You know, we had to rely on him a little more than we really wanted to in the run game. Mm-hmm. Um, some people kind of, you know, it was misleading. I think he had 1,300 and some yards rushing. But it was a case where, you know, we had a young running back that was still feeling his way. And so he um, actually, you know, had to shoulder that load for us at times. And, you know, it was a deal where all we cared about was winning. And so and that's all he cared about. So we didn't really care how we did it. And then throwing the football, uh, we know he can do that. I mean, he did that for – uh, for multiple seasons uh, under your guidance and, and did it well. What what kind of year did you feel like he had through the air? Um, you know, he we didn't throw quite as much. Uh, between him and the running back, we had a lot more rushing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he still threw for over 2,300 yards, but, you know, and it was around 60-something percent, uh, percentage. I can't think of exactly the number. Yes, sir. Um, but, you know, he had a good year. Uh, I think it was 29 touchdowns passing or so. And so, you know, considering, you know, there are a lot of games early on that he didn't play that much in, and, you know, we were trying to save him for district, and there were some games that we were fortunate to get out early and didn't need him, so we didn't ask him to do much. But, um, you know, he did a great job. Him and, you know, his teammates did a great job this year. And then we, I remember we talked about it on the show. He had committed to Alabama, and he handled it in a very professional manner, and 
And, uh, you know, he, he didn't do a lot of media stuff, as you talked about. He, he wasn't all about that. And uh, uh, they really did the announcement in conjunction with the Elite 11. And I let him re- release that statement. And he stayed committed. Uh, I know there was some talk uh, near the end of his senior season. And, of course, uh, as Alabama was going on their playoff run, uh, Texas A&M, Kyler Murray uh, transferred to Oklahoma. Uh, and, and they had, they had a couple of guys leave the, leave the program. Uh, was there ever any? Uh, I know he, Texas A&M was recruiting him hard till the end. Did he ever wave? Did he ever have second thoughts at all? Uh, no, no. He, uh, you know, as a professional courtesy, you know, he entertained and we listened to you know Coach Summer and him, and you know I've known him for a long time, so a lot of respect. And, you know, I still felt like you know you got to listen and hear what's out there, but at the end of the day, he was you know, set on his decision and he knew why he wanted that decision. And, you know, he, you know, as I've told people, he understood what the word commitment meant. And originally when we decided, you know, when he said he was ready to commit, my deal was, you know, when you do it, you need to make sure this is where you want to go and, you know, stick with it once you do it. And so that's what he did. He, you know, he had no, he never wavered. Yes, and and that and that, and that was uh, I think admirable. I mean, Kyle Allen also transferred to Houston. They had they had some uh, they had an opening there and uh, uh, for uh, someone to come in, but he was he uh, he stuck with Alabama and 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 kind of and kind of talk about also um, what his thoughts were as he watched the, the year for Alabama unfold. I know uh, it, uh, he, they played twice in the state of Texas. Uh, and I know he was able to watch that closely. How did? What was his thoughts on what he what he saw is from a, from his perspective as as he before he transitioned to join the program? I mean, he just you know watched it as a fan. He you know of course he's probably more critical, and we really didn't just talk about it. We just enjoy watching the games in person, and you know he followed them, and you know of course he was pulling for him, and you know I'd imagine it's a great feeling when you know you're going to a school and they're having a lot of success, and you just hope it continues when you get there. And, you know, for people that might not necessarily know the story of Jalen, just kind of talk about what in particular did stick out to him about Alabama that other programs didn't have or that he saw in Alabama that he didn't see in other programs. Well, I mean, a big thing that stuck out to him was the, you know, tradition, of course, but, you know, the the structure of, you know, everything there af- academically and the support system and then plus the athletic stuff. And so he just thought that, you know, that was the perfect fit. And, Coach, then he transitioned to early enrollment at Alabama and uh, really was praised from the start uh, as he helped them prepare to to, uh, face uh, Michigan State in the college football playoff. And then, of course, Clemson. I think he played a crucial role on the scout team, kind of imitating Deshaun Watson. But just kind of talk about what his his first thoughts were as he transitioned uh, into the program and joined it at the end of the journey to the championship. You know, it's a deal where, you know, he had the opportunity to go there and, and, and you know, participate in practice. And, you know, we really didn't know exactly, you know, if they would really let him practice or how much. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, they kind of felt that he might have been able to give them something, you know, a different look. Um, and, you know, fortunately he was able to do that. You know, it was kind of, it was a, it's a blessing that, you know, he was able to just step in and, and go. Of course, he didn't understand practice speed and and things like that. He just, you know, was treating it more like I guess a real game. And I guess he, you know, he ended up giving him a good picture, from my understanding. 
Yeah, and that had to be, and that really had to help him get ready for spring football to get used to the speed of the game. Do you believe? Did you do? Did you think that? Or I guess I should say, how do you think that really helped him? Yes, sir. No, yeah, you know, I, the one thing about that one week it allowed him to to, to learn the speed mm-hmm. of the game, and he was you know kind of live, so he got kind of banged around, and so when he got in the spring, of course, quarterbacks were not as live. You know, they were you know really not live. But, you know, of course, every now and again, some of them, you know, hit the ground. But, you know, he got to learn the speed of the game. So that put him ahead of the curve, I think, you know, as for going into spring, as opposed to, you know, showing up first spring practice and, dang, this is fast. You know, he's already seen some of it. You know, I had my dad as a coach in numerous sports over the years growing up, and I know that when I went into the next level, whether it be in high school or even in college, Having a coach that I connect to in kind of the same way was very important for me. Just talk about what Jalen has said about his connection with Lane Kiffin and or Nick Saban and just kind of how that's helped him propel so far here at his career at Alabama. I mean, you know, I really can't, you know, say that, you know, they, they have a great, I guess they have a great relationship. We don't really, you know, the thing is, is, you know, like once he goes there, you know, I'm, I'm just a parent now. Mm-hmm. So I'm no longer his coach, so I don't get into you know, when I talked to him, it's okay. Oh, you're great, because you know that's a big transition from oh, yeah. high school to walking into college. You know, especially when it's just a, a few weeks in between. And so, you know, they're building their relationship. You know, they have light moments. Of course, they have a lot of teachable, coachable moments. Um, but you know, from what I know, everything is going well. You know, I'm not the parent to call and <laughs> check on him and see how he's doing with the coaches and. And that kind of deal, you know, I call him, you know, he and I talk, you know, sometimes. Usually we text. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of a deal where, you know, he's kind of a, you know, I always use the, fir- the, the phrase, he's a different kid, you know, and he's very independent. You know, of course, when you go off to school, you get homesick a little bit, so he needed spring break. And so it was a good deal for him to get recharged, I guess. And so, you know, he's down there and, you know, the coaches are taking care of him, you know, and, He's uh, building a lot of relationships with the players on and off the field, and and so he's adjusting well. And then coach, he he uh, he transitioned pretty well into the spring. I mean, from the from the start, he he performed well and made some plays in the scrimmages, and you heard good things about the way he was performing. I know you were able to go down to the coaches' clinic and and get to see some of that yourself. Just I guess talk about generally. Uh, how you felt like he he transitioned and how he performed uh, in his early days as an Alabama quarterback. You know, I can't, you know, I'd say, you know, as far as how he performed, you'd have to ask their coaches. I don't, you know. Mm -hmm. I said the thing that, you know, stood out when I got to see him was it was just amazing to see a 17-year-old kid Mm -hmm. out there that was, you know, as he was performing – it looked like the same kid that played for me, I'll say, his demeanor. Right. You know, he's a, he's a laid-back kid. You know, he doesn't get rattled. He doesn't show a lot of emotion. So you're not going to, you know, see that he's down. He, you know, he's just even kill. And so it was really impressive, you know, to me to see him just go about his business as usual. And, you know, I think that's something that, uh, you know, bode well for him moving forward is just how he deals with things. And, you know, he's a... Uh, he has a real business-like attitude towards a lot of things. And, you know, he's a kid, so he has fun and jokes with the players and all that kind of stuff. But, he's, you know, he doesn't let anything just get to him. 
and I, I noticed the same thing myself, Coach. Uh, I the, the running joke was, well, he he should be going to the prom, but I just I thought he was outstanding. Uh, his poise, he was mostly, of course, with the twos and the threes, and I just felt like from the first scrimmage, I was able to see one scrimmage. I know you were able to see the one at the coaches' clinic, but and and then of course we saw him on a day, eleven to fifteen for one hundred twenty yards. That's the thing that struck me the most about him so far as a player. It didn't seem too big for him. He seemed pretty comfortable for a young player. He did make some mistakes, and that's to be expected for someone uh, that had not been part of the program that long. But he showed outstanding potential, and just I felt like he performed very well to, to put him. And when Nick Saban you know, tells Chris Lowe uh, that he's entered the conversation with the coaches, that's outstanding for someone that's that young and, and uh, in the earliest stages of his development. Yes, it's you know it's going to be interesting. It'll be interesting moving forward. You know he's he's adjusting well, and you know he's in you know best part he's in you know competition, and it's just fortunate for him that you know he's even mentioned or able to be in it. So we'll see how it pans out. And so, what is his plans now? Will will he be coming home any this summer? Or is he going to stay in Tuscaloosa, Coach? Uh, no, he's going to come home uh, when they get out. I think he has to come home for a few weeks. Yeah, I think he actually makes it in time to do the prom. Ah, <laughs> oh, nice. There you go. I think he comes in on a Friday and the prom's on Saturday, so he's, he's going to show up. <laughs> but um, then he'll go back. And, you know, like I said, the big thing, of course, he'll come and train and things like that. But the thing is, is that, you know, at his age, it's a deal where he needs to come home and recharge. Mm-hmm. You know, and, of course, the longer you're away from home, it, it gets easier to be gone. And, you know, you're... You know, the thing with nowadays is he only he's only home for a few weeks. It's not like he's home for months. So, you know, it's just kind of like a little off time. Yeah, and that's outstanding. Great that he's going to be able to be among his classmates mm-hmm. again, and they get a chance to see him. And uh, after he's uh, already starting to acclimate himself to Alabama, when he comes home to kind of train with uh, with uh, in, in uh, for with you with you coaches, are you involved in that at all, or has he uh, got some people that he uh, that he works out with? Uh, you know, we he has some people that he works out with, so you know, he'll get some work in. And so, you know, we're not, you know, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so he, so he, he's, he's definitely going to come home and work. That's just what he does. Mm-hmm. It's He definitely has an outstanding work ethic, and he had an outstanding mm-hmm. career for your program, Coach, and uh, it looks like he has a very bright future, and that's a great credit to you and your coaching staff. I know sometimes it can be a difficult situation coaching your son, but you did an outstanding job, obviously. Thank you very much. And Thank co- you very much. We enjoyed having him. Absolutely. Well, Coach, we appreciate the time today. Uh, we know uh, it's been a very busy for you, and we wish Jalen nothing but the best. I will say this, he's uh, made quite an impression on everybody in the state of Alabama. They've been buzzing about him. That was Avarian Hertz, father of Jalen Hertz. Just two more interviews this show, but uh, we're going to hear from William Redfish Barger, and then I'm just going to go straight into an interview with Scott Wright, who's talking about a little bit of the NFL draft. William, how are you doing this afternoon? Welcome. Doing great, guys. How about y'all? Doing well, and William Hannah Stevens is with me, and this is the first time we were able to talk with you since the A-Day game. We talked to Avrion Hertz, very interesting conversation in our number two, William, and 
uh, he gave a little bit of insight into uh, Jalen and what he's uh, the transition he's had to the University of Alabama. Uh, he feels like uh, that he's uh, been uh, extremely poised. And uh, I think the most poignant thing he said in our conversation was when he watched him at the coaches' clinic uh, for the second scrimmage. He said it was just like, even though he was only 17 years old, he said I think the thing that uh, made him the proudest was it was like watching him. Uh, as he said, it was like watching him play for me. He felt like he was at ease and performed uh, on a big stage. Yeah, and I think, you know, we, we talked about this on BAMS last week, Drew, that, you know, if, if you just got to see the heyday game, um, you know, I think most people would walk away from that and say, well, you know, maybe Blake Barnett needs to be, you know, in consideration for the starting job coming out of spring practice. Well, if it, all he had done was what you saw in the heyday game, that would be the case. But, you know, the two scrimmages prior to that um, weren't pretty at all. And I think that's, you know, why in my mind, um, the way I've got the quarterbacks ranked coming out of spring practice is, you know, Cooper Bateman one and Jalen Hurts two. Um, you know, mainly because I thought those were the two guys that were the most consistent throughout those three um, spring scrimmages. And I think that's the amazing thing about Jalen Hurts is, is, you know, for all the people that were excited about what they saw of him on TV, you know, a couple of Saturdays ago, that's exactly the same performance that he had the two scrimmages prior. So, you know, if he can build on that and continue to um, absorb the playbook and, and, you know, go into fall camp and, you know, get into those two scrimmages where he doesn't make poor decisions, he doesn't make game-changing mistakes, and, you know, continues to show the quick release, the ability to get the ball out of his hand fast, and, uh, you know, stay in that conversation. I think, you know, for the first time since Nick Saban's been at Alabama, um, you might have a true freshman quarterback actually in serious consideration for the starting job. And that's significant. I mean, it's never really happened at Alabama. And uh, it's just, that's just, uh, it would be uh, kind of mind-boggling, but I got to give you credit and uh, several people that I talked to in the recruiting process last year that I had, I watched film of Hertz, but you guys really kind of broke it down and followed his progress closely. Uh, he, uh, most everyone by the end of uh, his senior season before he enrolled early had him, he went from almost a sort of an unknown guy early in the summer to, of course, uh, going to the elite 11 to being uh, the top rated dual threat quarterback in America by the end of his senior season. And many have uh, predicted that he would uh, make an early impact at Alabama as far as with his skill set, and that's been the case. Well, you know, I've been watching him, I guess, since his junior year of high school. And the thing that's always stood out to me is what you kind of saw this spring, Drew, at the A-Day game at the scrimmage. Um, every Friday night in high school, you could, you know, I, I could wake up at midnight, you know, and get on my phone or the next day and go to the Houston Chronicle. And it was like watching the same thing, and they would just hit the rewind button every Friday. You know, he would throw for 250 yards and three touchdowns, and he'd rush for a buck 50 or a buck 25 and two touchdowns. I mean, he averaged, you know, 250 passing, 125 running, and basically four or five touchdowns every single Friday night. And that, that was the thing that, that really attracted me to him was the consistency, you know, the, the lack of um, interceptions. Um, you know, when, when things broke down in the pocket, I mean, he just made play after play after play. 
play with both his arm and his feet on the run. So, I mean, I really do. I think he is was really, really underrated, um, you know, as a, as a high school quarterback. Um, and I think it's going to be interesting to see, you know, especially with, you know, next Monday it looks like Alabama's going to get the dual-threat quarterback from, from Hawaii. And so that's actually two true dual-threat quarterbacks in the last two recruiting classes. And uh, I think that'll be real interesting to see, you know, what the Lane Kiff and Nick Saban brain trust can kind of construct an offense around, you know, going forward in the future with guys like that. Yeah, it really does. It is fascinating because he brings – I mean, Blake Barnett has mobility. There's no question about it. But uh, Jalen Hurts brings an electricity. As, as uh, it, Coach Hurts told us on, earlier on the show, William, in his uh, freshman – or excuse me, his senior season, uh, when we talked with him, it was underway back in September. So now everything is in the books. But he rushed for 1,300-plus yards. And as Coach Hurts said, they had to rely more on the running game this past year. 1,300-plus yards, still threw for 2,329 TDs. Uh, just so, just some amazing numbers, and and the biggest thing is the competition level they faced. The state, the six A state champion, large school came out of their region. Yeah, well, it's, you know, I don't care what the classification is. If you see a kid that's playing, you know, Metro Houston Texas hmm. high school football, it's it's legit competition. And uh, you know, that's that's the thing. I mean, when you start looking at his career numbers. Um, you know, 55 or somewhere between 51 and 55 touchdowns as a senior. You know, that, that you know, quote, balance of what he was able to do running the football uh, versus throwing it in the air. You know, the thing that we've talked about this before on the show, you know, I, I kind of thought that, you know, Nick Saban and Lane Kiffin missed the boat, um, you know, two years in a row, um, you know, not really having that package. Um, you know, if you go back to when A.J. was the starter as a senior in 2013, and, you know, you had T.J. Yeldon and, and you know, those, those big running backs. And I just, you know, I thought to myself, you know, why not let Blake Sims and Kenyon Drake just give them a package, you know, when the game's out of hand halfway through the fourth quarter, and you send them in and say, guess what, Blake? You know, we don't care if it's third and 12. Don't throw a pass. You run zone read. Um you know, every single play, let them get good at it, let them get a rhythm. It accomplishes a couple of things. You know, it gives a backup quarterback and a backup running back game game experience. Um, you know, it gets them off the bench, gets them happy with some quality playing time. But the biggest thing is it gives opposing defensive coordinators, uh, a, you know, a 360-degree different facet offensively, you know, to have to scheme for on a week-to-week basis. And, you know, maybe worst-case scenario – you know, that's what they'll come up with this year, um, you know, for Jalen Hurts. You know, maybe he'll have a package if he, you know, ends up not being the starter. And odds are he's probably not going to be based on the track record of Nick Saban. But maybe they'll come up where they give him that package, um, you know, where he comes in and runs over in certain situations. Yeah, it would be interesting to see if they would add that. I mean, you're right. That is the one thing they haven't done, and they really didn't do it under Blake Sims as well. But – uh, with Blake Sims in there, uh, except for when the game was out of reach. Uh, but I, and I, I think, I, but to, to transition though to running back uh, because we we uh, we had we got your thoughts on the QB situation, and I agree. I think Jalen Hurts should be in the conversation. Uh, we we know that the spring is not just a day; uh, it, it is a three to four week gauntlet. 
uh, and you go through really four weeks and you have three scrimmages. But I thought the statement Damian Harris made, I know it was against the twos, still looked really good on A-Day. We know what Bo Scarborough can do. He didn't do a whole lot against the first-team defense, but I think it was significant the progress Damian Harris made. Yeah, absolutely, and to kind of build on what you said, I, I don't think spring practice is just the three or four weeks of practice. I think spring practice you know, starts the minute that the off-season program begins in January. Um, you know, you, you saw a guy that kind of got punished um, for the actual practices of spring practice and was not allowed to keep its starting job at right guard in Alphonse Taylor. Um, so, you know, it's really a, a continual thing. It doesn't just start and stop once they put the pads on. Um, you know, they've got that discipline board in the team meeting room and, and everything factors in. Um, you know, it's not just who gets the most pluses and minuses in practice or games. You've got to be a, a good citizen and, and keep your play clean off the field as well. Um, but, yeah, the running back situation, I totally agree with you. I thought Damian Harris um, was kind of the one of the surprise players, so to speak, of spring practice. Um, yeah, I think he was a little bit unprepared last year, maybe got thrust into um, you know, having to play um, before he was actually ready physically and mentally. Um, looked a lot more comfortable, a lot more decisive in getting north and south. Um, very quick. I mean, you saw the, the pre-spring testing numbers where he ran a 4-4-40. So, you know, I think him and, and Bo could be a nice, you know, thunder and lightning combination there. Um, you know, where things I think are going to get even more interesting, you know, is once B.J. Emmons and Joshua Jacobs hit campus this fall, you know, one of those two guys are going to have to be that third running back, you know, that comes in against some of the, you know, the, the, the lesser uh, – equipped opponents on the schedule and gives guys a breather. Um, you know, both of them may end up being that way. I, I could see, uh, you know, with Jacob's electricity, um, you know, that he has in his legs, he kind of reminds me of, of a Kenyon Drake, um, where maybe he could factor in as a true freshman, you know, as kind of a, a running back, slot wide receiver type guy if they needed him to fill that role. But, yeah, I think a lot of people were really worried about the running back situation, you know, going into spring practice, like a lot of people probably still are. But, you know, just go back over the last 10 years and, and look at, you know, uh, 2008, you know, Nick Saban utilized the true freshman running back, as, you know, as depth and, and Mark Ingram. 2009, he utilized Trent Richards. You know, 2012, he utilized T.J. Yeldon. So, you know, this isn't something that's new to the program. You know where Nick Saban's going to the to the bench with some young guys to come in and provide quality depth in that position. And uh, William, we have a uh, the number one caller to Talking Ball on the Neighbors Wealth Management Hotline. He wanted to ask you a question, and that is be rich. Hey William, I got a quick question for you. Would you give me a name, maybe a guy on offense and a guy on defense, who's on that are on the clock? Do you think their window? To, uh, to take the bull by the horn to get some playing time is closing. They need to take the most of this opportunity this offseason. Uh, just a couple of names that you think you need to really show out here. Well, I think the obvious one on offense, uh, you know, especially considering he got his degree back in December, would be Dakota Ball. Um, he's already got his degrees, you know, bounced around from, you know, a couple of different positions and hasn't really ever factored in. So that would be my guy on offense. Um, the two guys on defense that I would throw out there to you, the first one would be Johnny Dwight. 
and unfortunately, the second one would be Tony Brown. Um, yeah, I do think with his latest suspension that's going to spill over into a six-game suspension into the fall that, you know, he is quote-unquote on his ninth, you know, cat life down there in Tuscaloosa. And one more misstep, and he's probably going to get sent back home to uh, Texas. Thanks, William. And, uh, William, I wanted to clarify something, too, what I thought was interesting at the end because I thought he would switch back in the fall. But according to Nick Saban, uh, Dakota Ball, it looks like he's going to spend his last year of eligibility on the D-line. And what I thought was significant about it is uh, he talked about uh, they, how uh, defensive line-wise, uh, he was talking about who was missing in the A-Day game. He said, we didn't have John Allen and we didn't have Dakota Ball, and they would both be in the two deep. So I thought that was very interesting. Well, the first thing that surprised me when he's talking about John Allen, and, you know, I'll be real interested to see if Dakota Ball's mentioned in that same second group uh, once the, the freshman hit campus this summer. Very good point. Uh, yeah, there's a, you know, there's a junior college kid coming in at defensive end named Jamar King, and, you know, you've got two of the top interior nose guard defensive tackle types in last year's recruiting cycle, and Kendall Jones and Raekwon Davis. Um, you know, that are both coming in as well. So that, that's all still to be determined, um, you know, once fall practice starts. But we'll have to wait and see. Absolutely. And then I wanted to transition to the offensive line uh, and, and your thoughts. I thought the unit made progress. I really think that even the twos are starting to improve because we saw what Damian Harris was able to do. Of course, we I think we both agree Shank Taylor was performing very well with the twos on A-Day but is likely to be with the ones uh, come fall camp, but kind of just talk about uh, their progress. Well, you know, I think when you talk about that, you know, this is a byproduct of the recruiting, Drew, when you talk about that second-team offensive line looking like they're making an improvement. You know, there's there's three guys on that second-team offensive line that, you know, I think a lot of people going into spring practice, you know, expected them to be starters. And that's Bradley Bozeman, Alphonse Taylor, and, and J.C. Hassenauer at center. Um, you know, before the, the move was made, you know, with Piercebacher to center, a lot of people had an hour pencil in as the starter. So you've got three kind of somewhat proven commodities there. And, uh, you know, it was probably more a, a byproduct of them making progress. And, and maybe the, the second-team defensive line needs to be upgraded a little bit this year in the recruiting class as well. But they did make progress. Um, you know, I think it's – but before you can kind of make a, a total judgment on it, you got to wait and see what, you know, Cam Robinson and Lester Cotton look like over there on the left side. Um, you know, certainly, um, you know, the right guard situation is a long way from being settled between, you know, Alphonse Taylor and, and uh, Brandon uh, Kennedy. So, you know, I think that's, that's, you know, looking at it the way it stands right now, I think for sure, you know, Cam Robinson is going to be your left tackle. Ross Piercebacher is going to be your center. Um, odds are Cotton's going to be the left guard. Um, he's certainly going to be one of the starting five, no matter what position it is. You know, there still seems to be some, um, at least the vibe that I've picked up from the coaching staff, a little bit of, I guess, hesitancy, so to speak, as far as to go out and name Jonah Williams the starter at right tackle. You know, based on what I saw, I don't understand that. <laughs> uh, but we'll have to see how it plays out um, in August. But, you know, that's a good problem to have. That we're, that we're talking about all these numbers and you know, all the possible people that could pop up and factor in. 
You know, it's been a long time at Alabama since they've had this kind of depth along the offensive line, and, you know, they're continuing to stack it up with this year's recruiting class as well. And then uh, Hannah Stevens had a thought for you, William, and I wanted to kind of transition that because we were going to ask you a little bit about uh, the, 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 you know, the – well, who, uh, Alabama has lost uh, some key performers who are going to move on to the NFL draft. And, of course, one of those is Ryan Kelly, who had an outstanding career at Alabama. And his stock just seems to continue to rise. But she had a question about him. Hey, how are you doing today? Good, Anna. How about you? I'm good. My question for you is kind of a statement in a, in a question itself. But, you know, Ryan Kelly – is a strong player, but they're talking about a few of his weaknesses, one of them being his center grabbing out low enough. And if you remember James Carpenter, who played at Alabama, did well, ended up going to the NFL in 2011 to the Seattle Seahawks, had the same problem and has improved dramatically, even though his injuries um, limited him later in his career, and now he's a giant. Just talk about how James Carpenter made the same improvements and how Ryan Kelly's going to be able to do the same type of thing. Well, first of all, you know, they're really two totally different body types, in my opinion. You know, Carpenter played, you know, around the 325, 330-pound mark when he was at Alabama. I have no clue what he weighs now in the NFL, but I would imagine still, you know, north of 315. Ryan Kelly's a guy that when you see him in street clothes, probably up until, you know, this past year, looks more like a basketball player than, a, than an offensive lineman. You know, very lean, very streamlined. Uh, certainly nobody that you would describe as, as bulky or, or overly muscular. And, you know, it really took him up until his senior year to, to get his weight up, um, you know, close to that 295, 300-pound mark. Um, you know, and I think that's where his biggest, in my opinion, it's not so much his balance or his center of gravity. It's, it's the lack of, you know, mass and, and uh, strength in his lower body where he's always struggled. It's against big, powerful, you know, nose guards and defensive tackles at the point of attack. You know, you saw what Robert Kimdichie kind of did to him last year against Old Miss, you know, in the past against LSU with some of their bigger body defensive linemen. You know, he struggled a little bit, much in the same way that Barrett Jones did. Um, you know, both of those guys are, are very technician-solid offensive linemen, but they're more athletes than they are the, the Chance Warmack, DJ Fluker-type ballers that you would talk about as, as road graders in the running game. Where, where Ryan Kelly um, you know, became the Remington Award winner was, was basically being an extra offensive line coach on the field, uh, getting up onto the second level and, and getting a hat on a linebacker, getting the offensive line and the right calls. But, you know, He's always kind of struggled with that point of attack of getting movement and uh, you know not getting pushed back into the backfield um, against bigger body defensive linemen. And you know that's really only the only way you can improve upon that is to keep working at it in the weight room and getting bigger and stronger. But that that's that's really not a negative because mm-hmm. he's got you know that's something that can be coached. It's something that can be worked upon. You know, the one thing that he does have is the athleticism, the great feet, um, the ability to take a lateral step and get, get leverage and get uphill and get on the linebacker. That can't be taught. Um, you either are blessed with that or you're not. So he, he's got the part down that's going to carry him, obviously, to you know, be in the top center in college football this year, hopefully into a first-round draft pick later this week. But I think he's a guy that if his body holds up, 
is going to play a long time in the NFL, Hannah, because, you know, and a reason a lot of teams are looking at taking him so high is he's proven that he can play all five positions at the collegiate level. And when you get to that NFL level and you start breaking down a 53-man NFL roster, they, they only carry six, seven, maybe sometimes eight linemen on their, you know, their active rosters. So you, if you're a backup, man, you, you've got to be somebody that's flexible enough to play multiple positions. And, and he's proven that. Not to say that he can't go to the NFL and be a, a pro Bowl center. I do think he's got that type of upside. But where he becomes such a valuable commodity to a team, see somebody, if you take them, you groom them, uh, you know, he could go out there in an emergency situation, maybe not survive at left tackle, but I'm convinced he could go out there and survive at all other four positions along the offensive line. So really the only weakness I see in his game is continuing to try and get, you know, more powerful hips, uh, more powerful lower body, and generate more power and pop of attack and being able to knock people backwards. But that's the only weakness in Ryan Kelly's game. And that was another point. You made a good point earlier about his athleticism. I think that's something that, you know, I saw him a few a few weeks ago when I got to interview him, and he did look a lot leaner, but he looked a lot stronger as well. And so I think that could be a really big benefit on his part is his ability to be mobile for some of these teams that not ne- that necessarily have a different type of offense that requires him to be a little bit more, more mobile vertically. Well, and one thing, too, Hannah, that really, he's really going to probably benefit from getting out of the quote-unquote Nick Saban process. You know, as an NFL player, you're, you're not required. I mean, certainly you have to maintain a, a level of physical fitness, but you're not required to do all the running year-round that Ryan's had to do um, at Alabama. You know, and he, he falls under the category of what's called a hard gainer which means you have a difficult time. You have such a fast metabolism. You have a difficult time gaining and maintaining weight. So I think once he gets out of Tuscaloosa and, you know, gets with a pro team, you know, he's a guy that you could probably see a year from now. He's probably going to weigh 315 pounds, especially if he goes off and, you know, trains with some of these guys. Um, You know, my my favorite place to see offensive linemen go, um, it's where Chance Warmack mm-hmm. spent his offseason. It's where he took his brother Dallas last May. I'm sure he's going to take him out there again this May. Is to the LeBentley Charles Offensive Lineman Performance Center. Um, you know, he's a former Ohio State All-American, former Pro Bowl offensive guard. He's really taken the the science of what it takes to you know not just be your garden variety offensive lineman at the collegiate and the NFL level, but to be elite. And I really think that Ryan Kelly's got a very, very bright future. And, you know, really when you sit there and you start breaking down somebody's skill set, you check off on the positive side, the negative side. The only thing you have to check is, you know, maybe needs a little bit more lead in his ass. That's, that's about as good as it gets for an offensive lineman. Well, and William, to, to close out the segment now, and it's been outstanding. We've mostly covered offense today. I wanted to cover the final position, and uh, I know you know him very well. That's Mario Cristobal. Based upon what you saw uh, in uh, the intel you got, how do you think his transition has been to, to helping better develop these tight ends, especially when it comes to the out the uh, outside running game and the edge running game, and then just being uh, they haven't been the uh, the blockers people thought they should be, and the factor in the running game the last uh, since 2012. 
Well, you know, first of all, it's not just the tight ends. He's going to be able to focus you know, on the tackles as well. On, on the offensive tackles as well. But, you know, with there being a coaching change at the tight end position, you know, there's one thing that's been true about football since the beginning of time, and it'll still be there at the end of time, is, is, a, is a football team and, a, and, a, and a, a position group, you know, tends to take on the personality and the mindset of their coach. And, you know, Mario is a very aggressive, uh, very high-energy guy. You know, this is somebody that's, you know, closer to 50 now than he is 40, and he's, a, he's you know, a practicing black belt at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, he gets in there and works out with his players. That's one of the reasons they like him so much. And I expect to see, you know, some of that mindset, that aggression, you know, filter down to, you know, guys like O.J. Howard, Hell Hinches, um, yeah, I think he's going to play a, a real big part in the development of the true freshman Miller Forstall, who was also one of the surprises, you know, of spring practice. I think he's a the perfect position coach for a, you know, bring your lunch pail blue collar guy. You know, I don't want to participate in the, you know, the party and in the social nonsense of college life. I just want to be an NFL first round draft pick. You know, the true freshman Jonah Williams. I think those two guys are, you know psychologically matched up about as perfect as a couple can be. So I'm very excited about that. You know, you bring in Brent Key and kind of let him, you know, transition into, you know, one of the deepest parts of the team, the, you know, the interior of the offensive line. I mean, they're loaded with centers and guards. So, uh, you know, I think it's a great opportunity. It gives Nick Saban, a, you know, another guy on his coaching staff and Brent Key. Um, you know, you've got two offensive line coaches now. Uh, one of them's the former head coach, and the other one was one year away from being the next head coach at Central Florida. So that's that's a pretty envious position to be in. And, and, you know, looking around the landscape of college football, you know, I don't see another Power 5 program, you know, that has that type of experience, uh, that type of recruiting prowess at that position uh, that Brent Key and Mario Cristobal does. So just another area that kind of separates Alabama from the rest of the pack. Really does, and, and uh, that, just an outstanding segment again, William. I gr- really appreciate uh, the insight, and I agree with all with those sentiments. I think the move was outstanding to bring Brent Key in to give some new energy and enthusiasm, and and take Mario uh, to uh, to be to let Mario concentrate on the offensive tackles, and also and uh, help more uh, to to de- to develop those tight ends and become more physical factors on the edge. Uh, great insight, great information as always. We thank you for uh, joining Talking Ball today. Uh, we and uh, we we always enjoy you being part of the show, and uh, we uh, Hannah and I really uh, have uh, enjoyed uh, the segment this afternoon. Appreciate it. I enjoyed it too, and I'll talk to y'all soon. Okay. Thank right. you. Thank you, William. We really appreciate the time. That's William Redfish Barger, former Alabama offensive lineman, always very close to the program. Love his insight and his opinions. Uh, we wanted to talk a little draft too. Outstanding stuff on Ryan Kelly. Uh, they, a nice job there, Hannah. We're getting him to kind of uh, talk about and expand on why he thinks Ryan Kelly could be an outstanding pro. And I was just thinking about this before we go to break. Nick Saban has had. First round draft picks. Now, if if Ryan Kelly goes as a as a first round center, you're almost running out of positions that he has not, and it's pretty much coming down to quarterback, kicker, and punter, uh, because he's had a you know, Ryan Kelly would be a first round pick at center. Uh, we we've already talked about Chance Warmack. He was the top ten pick at guard. 
TJ Fluker, Andre Smith, uh, James Carpenter. Uh, you'll, you'll see Cam Robinson. There's going to be multiple first-round offensive tackles already at this position. And then uh, O.J. Howard at tight end, could he join the parade next year uh, if Mario Cristobal can further develop him as a blocker then OJ uh, could join the train as a tight end if that happens, if you if you check off center and tight end, pretty much as we said, it's just going to be quarterback uh, and uh, the kicker and the punter because multiple running backs uh, in, the, in the first round as always uh, and uh, it's, uh, with Trent Richardson, Mark Ingram uh, who've been outstanding. Honestly, I think Derrick Henry should be, but that will play itself out later. Amari Cooper, Julio Jones at wide receiver, just a myriad of safeties and corners and linebackers, defensive linemen. But what a, out just a, a, a resume as Nick Saban continues to turn it out. They will end up, in my opinion, with at least three first-rounders come Thursday, maybe four. I think there's a really good uh, chance for four, and it's going to be another outstanding infomercial for the University of Alabama. We're going to go on a break on talking while we come back. Our final segment of a quick three hours. Scott, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing excellent. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, Scott. And uh, there's been uh, this has been an intriguing uh, several weeks leading up to this process. Now the top two picks have been traded, as we know. The Los Angeles Rams and the Philadelphia Eagles are on the clock. Still looking like the two quarterbacks. Uh, are going to come off the board with the top two picks, which is, of course, going to be a good thing for Lee Steinberg's client, Paxton Lynch from Memphis. Probably means he's going to be pushed up the board. But I guess uh, the real question is, uh, what do you, in your mind right now, what do you see the San Diego Chargers doing with a third pick? Because it looks like uh, if you had – my speculation is I think that Jared Goff's going to go uh, to the Rams with the first pick and then Carson Wentz uh, to the Eagles. Do you agree with that or are you hearing other things? Yep, I agree with that. And and on the Paxton Lynch thing, too, and, and I think he should get pushed up. I think he right. should go number eight to the Cleveland Browns, but wow. I don't think he will. I think it's a lot of uh, smoke being blown, and, and I think mm-hmm. his agent is doing a very good job of, of getting his client's name out there. But I think he's going to be available for the Jets at 20. I don't know who's going to take him ahead of them. I, I, even though the Browns should, I really don't think they're going to go that route. I think they're going to try to get maybe a guy like Connor Cook a little bit later, and, and then there's a gap of teams that really don't need a quarterback. Maybe the Buffalo Bills, but if I'm the Jets, I, I don't fight. I don't think I'm going to trade. If, if the Browns pass, I'm just going to hold tight and wait for and Lynch to fall to me. Uh, but San Diego Chargers, I, I think it's, uh, it's uh, the, the common wisdom has been offensive tackle, and now they're going to have a chance at Laramie Tunstall. But mm-hmm. I don't know that they view that as much of a priority as we do from the outside. They've already committed to a couple of uh, blockers on the outside, uh, and they're getting healthy. That Injuries were the source of a lot of their troubles last year, so I think they're going to go defense with that pick, and I'm working on my final mock draft today now, and I'm kind of trying to decide between either Jalen Ramsey, a defensive back from Florida State, and DeForest Buckner, the defensive end from Oregon. Um, I, I'm leaning Ramsey, though. Uh, I, I just don't know how they can pass on him. Buckner is a very good player, but Ramsey is – Special. So I'm leaning that direction for the Chargers, but uh, that, that, that's where the draft starts. Because as you said, Goff is going one to the Rams and Wentz is going two to the Eagles. Spoilers. Yeah, and and uh, and then, uh, but the one thing about Paxton Lynch, there was some talk that he might slip to round two before all these trades. But now you do believe you would, you don't think he would he would slide past twenty to the Jets. So he he should be safely in the first round. I, I think so. Um, and, and even if the Jets 
Warren to take them, then there's still options. I mean, the Denver Broncos, what a perfect fit huh. that would be. I've compared yeah. Paxton Lynch to a rich man's Brock Osweiler. Uh, so, so I mean, the Broncos, if they could even move up below for him, even the Arizona Cardinals, they're going to need to find a long-term uh, replacement for uh, Carson Palmer. Uh, I've heard the Chiefs link him. So there's a bunch of potential landing spots. I think we're going to have at least three. It's a, it's a matter of are we going to have four, and, and if so, who's the fourth going to be? And, and my money's on Connor Cook from Michigan State. And I agree with you on Jalen Ramsey. I think he's a freak. He may be the best player in the draft. I don't think San Diego can pass on him. And then that brings up the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, the Joey Bosa has been discussed. Miles Jack. Who? Hey, I know you're working on your uh, your final mock draft. Who have you? Who are you leaning toward as far as Dallas? It's got to be defense, though, right? Well, I think you're right, and I think they're hoping Ramsey is there. I think uh-huh. that would be their preference. And gotcha. If Ramsey's there, I think that's a no-brainer. He's a Dallas Cowboys type of pick. If he's gone, then it becomes a little bit more difficult. But you hear them link to Zeke Elliott, the running back from Ohio State. He's a terrific player, and it's really fun to think about him running behind that dominant Cowboys offensive line. But Jerry Jones has made it pretty clear the past couple of off-seasons where he values that position in the grand scheme of things. I just have a hard time envisioning him taking Elliott at number four. So uh, they're almost back into a corner. I think they almost have to take Joey Bosa, the defensive end from Ohio State. Greg Hardy is gone. Randy Gregory is suspended. DeMarcus Lawrence is suspended. They need somebody who can get after the quarterback. If you have Super Bowl aspirations, you better have not one pass rusher, multiple pass rushers. And right now they have none. So I almost think they have to take Bosa there. And it's perfectly justifiable. He belongs right in that range talent-wise, but uh, any leeway they might have had to, to take that proverbial best player available might have went out the window with all those uh, suspensions. And then with Jacksonville at pick five, uh, Scott, uh, to me that, that would be a really good fit for Tunsil. Well, I, I think this, there's two different ways here. I think it's going to be defense, and I think it's going to be either Miles Jack, the linebacker wow. from LA, okay. or it's going to be Forrest Buckner, the defensive end from Oregon. I think that's the two they're deciding between and, uh, because – they did bring in uh, Kelvin Beecham as a potential uh, replacement for Luke Dopel. If that doesn't work out, they invested in uh, Jeremy Purcell. So, uh, as you can tell, this is not looking great for Larry Tunsil. We haven't really even brought up his name in a few weeks ago. He was the presumptive number one overall pick. But I think the Jaguars are looking defense, and it's between Jack and Buckner, and you can make it either. But uh, I'm going with Jack because the Jaguars' brain trust flew out to L.A. Uh, about a week ago. To work him out privately, which they wouldn't have done if their doctors had said, "Hey, you got to avoid this guy in draft day; it's too big of a risk." And I believe that was the same day as Blake Bortles was having some kind of charity golf tournament or something. So when the front office and the coaches ditch their star quarterback <laughs> charity event to go work out a player, I have to believe there's some serious interest there. Yeah, that's a great point. And then the Baltimore Ravens uh, at six. Uh, where do you see them going? Well, here we go. Now it's tonsil time, I think. Uh, and, and this is what Ozzie Newsom does. <laughs> Ozzie SEC. Newsom sits back. Yep, he just sits back and he waits for a great talent to fall into his lap for no good reason. <laughs> uh, and, and that's what happens here. And, and of course, they lost Fletchy Assemble uh, this offseason of free agency. So, um, regardless, they could play tonsil short term at right tackle, left tackle, whatever. He's just a great player. You find a place for him on the offensive line. Long term, he's your, your blindside protector for Joe Flacco. So, uh, even though the Ravens, I've heard them link strongly that they really want to upgrade the pass rush. And I think if Joey Bosa that was there, he'd be tempting. And I've even heard Leonard Floyd from Georgia, which I think would be a little bit of a reach, or Shaq Lawson from Clemson. But I just have to believe Ozzie Newsome, knowing his reputation and how good he is, he can't pass on Laramie Tunsil, the best player in the draft at number six. I completely agree.
Or uh, unless somebody trades, maybe the Tennessee Titans use some of those picks they got and come back up to number six, and they get the guy they were going to take number one, and then the Baltimore Ravens get that pass rusher in the middle of the first round. Yeah, and I, I see. Uh, I know you're, you're going to update it, uh, but speaking of that, I was going to ask, what organizations are you looking at to maybe uh, make, make a move, maybe uh, another trade? And you have Tennessee, uh, you had them trading back into the top ten uh, for an offensive tackle. Of course, then you're in the – I know you're going to update your mock, but in the, the one for April the 18th, you had Jack Conklin uh, being the guy that they would trade back into the nine hole uh, to, uh, to, to select. Yep, I think we're going to see all of the three top tackles go in the top ten and, and probably the back end of the top ten, Tunsil, Stanley, and then Conklin. We're going to see a run. And, and I think we're going to see the Titans trade up for one of them. Uh, so, so I think we're going to see at least one and maybe even two more trades in the back end of that top ten. Mm-hmm. The other guy to watch for is uh, the Miami Dolphins and Ezekiel Elliott, the running back from Ohio State. They were really high on Todd Gurley a year ago. Uh, they they lost Lamar Miller in free agency, and, and they've been pretty shameless about their pursuit of running backs this offseason. They keep finishing as the runner-up, it seems like, but they've been going after every running back available, and I have to believe that Elliott is the apple of their eye. And, and it, it just as the way the board goes, I don't know that he'd make it to 13, so they're probably going to have to move up a little bit, but I think there's enough teams willing to move down that if he gets past the Cowboys at four, they'll be able to move up a few spots to get him and uh, – uh, so, and that's one of those picks. I'm going to have Ezekiel Elliott to Dolphins in my mock draft. That's one thing I learned is if you feel confident about a player-team matchup, just put them there. Don't worry about what's happening ahead. Because if a team really likes the player, they're going to figure out how to get them. Yeah, and I, I know Miami has been uh, mentioned as at 13 wanting Ezekiel Elliott, but you think Elliott would uh, likely be gone by pick 13? I think he would. I mean, he's been linked as high as, like, as we mentioned, the Cowboys at four, and then right. the Browns at number eight is a, a possible landing spot. Uh, the Giants at 10, the Bears at 11 reportedly really like him. And, and uh, of course, John Fox uh, uh, is kind of a, had a thing for running backs when he was in, uh, in uh, Carolina. He used first-round picks on D'Angelo Williams, Jonathan Stewart during his tenure there. So, um, And then the Dolphins. So, yeah, I think there's just too many possibilities. Not to mention the danger of another team trading up. Maybe the Oakland Raiders at 14 tried to trade up for him, too. So, um, Ezekiel Elliott, it's kind of amazing how far we've come with running backs where a few years ago we were wondering, well, gee, are we ever going to see a running back in that top 10 to 15 <laughs> again? So now we're having teams talking about trading up to get one. Yeah, and Todd Gurley had a lot to do with that and the success uh, he's had with the Rams after going, uh, I believe, 10th overall last year. Uh, but, but, Scott, what what about the, the Cleveland Browns? What are they going to do? Uh, what do you project them to do? Because they've traded down. You you, you, you talked about Paxton Lynch, but you don't think they're going to go with him. Uh, they're, they're an interesting case. I mean, you, as you said, they could uh, think about Ezekiel Elliott, but really there's a lot of unknowns to me with what the Browns, what the direction they may go. Yeah, and, and honestly, that might be the number one storyline of this NFL draft for me is just to see what this new Browns regime is mm-hmm. going to prioritize uh, in the draft, what type of players, what's their type, because it, it is such, a, such an unorthodox strategy, bringing someone over from Major League Baseball. They're going to be at the forefront of the analytics movement in the NFL, so uh, it's just absolutely fascinating to me. And Their trade down from number two, I'm, I'm kind of withholding judgment on that until I see which quarterback they end up with, because... Ultimately, that's all that matters. They could take all these picks they got and draft a future Hall of Famer with every one of them. If they don't find a quarterback, it's not going to matter. And, and it, that, that, that sounds like an exaggeration, but it really isn't. I mean, look at J.J. Watt. Uh, you, can't, you can't get any better a player than him, and, and he can't get all the advance in the playoffs because he doesn't have a quarterback. So 
Um, it, it, it's just, it, it's just that's the most important thing. So, um, and I think the Browns are going to try to move down again. I think they're going to continue to try to stockpile picks, and then I won't be surprised to see them move back into the first round for me, Connor Cook from uh, Michigan State. So um, right now they're picking at eight. I guess I'll be surprised if they end up picking at number eight when all is said and done. I think they're going to move down a little bit further yet. And um, who they're going to take, I think that's anybody's best guess. I mean, if they stay at number eight, there's kind of everyone kind of agrees there's about eight players in this draft, a consensus. So you take whoever's left if they're truly going best player available. But I wouldn't be shocked to see them take an offensive tackle, maybe Ronnie Stanley from Notre Dame, uh, because Joe Thomas, he's a still an asset. And this might be the time to trade him. You could still maybe get a first-round pick out of Joe Thomas and um, replace him with somebody younger and cheaper. And, and Scott, uh, Hannah Stevens is with me uh, today on uh, Talking Ball, and I know she had a question about the draft. How are you doing today? Excellent, Hannah. Okay, so I'm going to try to stretch your mind a little bit. You know, everyone's All talking right. about the Seattle Seahawks. You know, they lost Marshawn Lynch. And I know they haven't used a first-round pick since 2012 and they got Bruce Irvin. But my question is this. Let's say Zico Elliott is taken first few picks, and that leaves, of course, Derrick Henry. And I know the Seattle Seahawks need offensive linemen. Even p- some people are projected that they even pick Ryan Kelly from Alabama. But what would the chances of them actually picking Derrick Henry to be a running back for them in the first round? I, I, I normally I would say yeah that's exactly right. But Thomas Rawls showed so much potential and ability while replacing Marshawn Lynch when he was hurt last year. He ran for almost a thousand yards and on I think less than 150 carries. I think they feel comfortable with him. At least I think they'll maybe bring in a running back at some point, but it'll probably be uh, beyond the first round. But something to watch out for for the Seahawks. You mentioned that desperate need they have on the along the offensive line. They lost their left tackle. And they were already kind of in dire straits up front before losing Russell Oku. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if the Browns take uh, offensive tackle earlier, like I mentioned, maybe Ronnie Stanley. Mm-hmm. Don't be shocked if they try to trade Joe Thomas to the Seattle Seahawks for that first-round pick. And the Seahawks have been shown a willingness to deal first-round picks for established players. Percy Harvin, Jimmy Graham, they could really shore up that left tackle position for the short term uh, with Joe Thomas. And, and then the Browns get another first-round pick and uh, – and kind of start over in their rebuilding movement. So I think that's something to watch out for because where Seattle's picking at 26, I don't think the value is going to be great along the offensive line. They're kind of in, in no man's land there. So I think they're going to be willing to move either up or down. And, Scott, that's a, that's a fascinating uh, scenario if that happened because Joe Thomas has been mentioned – uh, you know, in some trade talks, and uh, him going to Seattle, they, you know, as you said, they pulled the trigger on the Jimmy Graham deal last year. Uh, that would be really, really interesting. But I wanted to ask you about Derrick Henry to kind of expand on it. Uh, there had been some reports in the last couple of days that he could even slide to round three. Where do you have him projected right now? I think he's going to be a second round pick, and there's a chance he could sneak into the back end of round one. And and I've kind of struggled with him, and I think other evaluators have as well because just such a freak at that position. It's just hard to to fit him into a modern NFL offense. You have to go back to players who have been retired for a half a decade or more for comparisons. Uh, and and he could end up being a complete bust, or he could end up being one of the ten best players to come out of this draft. That that wouldn't surprise me. I mean, he's he's I call him the unicorn because I don't know. He's he's like a mystical figure. Uh, he's just a physical freak the way he is built, uh, and and uh, I'm not exactly sure how he's going to fit in a pro offense today. But uh, if you're a physical team that wants to pound the ball, uh, I can't think of a better option. Uh, the place I'd like to see him is maybe the Dallas Cowboys at the top of the second round at number 34, or maybe a little further down, Oakland Raiders. Uh, the Miami Dolphins can't get Ezekiel Elliott. Maybe he ends up there. So 
I think in the early to mid part of that second round, there's a lot of potential fits. And ultimately, I think he's a top 56. Yeah, that seems to be what most people are talking about. Uh, but I wanted to ask also about Ryan Kelly because Hannah brought up about him. There's been a lot of uh, speculation about him going in the first round. Travis Frederick was the last center from Wisconsin to go to the Dallas Cowboys in round one. Do you Does it really look like that's going to happen for Ryan Kelly? It really does. I've even heard talk as high as the top 20 overall. Uh, that would be a little rich for me. I believe in my final rankings I am checking in somewhere in the mid-30s. So uh, very much a fringe late first, early second rounder. Uh, and, and from what I hear, he is going to go in the first round. And, and I've even heard maybe the Seahawks take him uh, to shore up that offensive line and kind of build from the interior uh, rather than, than reaching for a tackle. They can get the best center. Uh, otherwise, I think the Arizona Cardinals could be a potential fit. They took a guard in the top 10 overall a few years ago. So they have been shown a willingness to invest on interior blockers. Uh, and maybe somebody trades up for them. Uh, the Jacksonville Jaguars, they're kind of a, they're at 38, but they've been looking for a center for years. Maybe they try to move up a little bit to get him. Um, he's a pretty popular guy right now. He's going to have a lot of suitors, and I'll be surprised if he escapes the first round. I mean, he's a guy I haven't got to the end of the first round mapping out my final mock draft, but he's definitely a player I'm going to make a, a point to get in there. Another Alabama player to watch is Ashawn Robinson. You know, I know several people have him picked to go to the Green Bay Packers. I think he'll fit in well with the defensive line and the 3-4 system. Just talk about what that pick would do for them, and if you don't think he'll go there, where do you have him projected to go? Yeah, what team do you say again? Sorry. Um, Ashawn Robinson, the Green Bay Packers. Okay, yeah. Ashawn Robinson, he, he's a lot of time this time of year, you, you hear players linked to specific teams. Oh, this team likes this guy, this team likes that guy. I haven't really heard that with Ashawn Robinson this year. And, and I think he's going to go somewhere in that middle of the first round. I think 11 to 21 is kind of his range. And, but he, I, there's not one specific team that I've heard him really strongly linked to. And uh, I'm kind of sketching out my final mock draft, and I kind of have him penciled into the New Orleans Saints at number 12 overall. It might be a little high, or the high end of his range. But, yeah, he, he's a player I'm, I'm definitely struggling with where to fit. But I think middle of the first round is where he'll be selected, ultimately top 20, top 21. Uh, but the Packers, I think they're going to be looking defensive line at 27. I think that's where the value is going to be uh, for them when you look at their needs. Uh, and maybe Jaron Reed from his uh, uh, A'shaun Robinson's teammate from Alabama could be there for them at 27. Uh, if not, Austin Johnson from Penn State, Vernon Butler from Louisiana Tech. There's going to be a bunch of options that they could even move down a little bit. Maybe that's a spot where if you want to come up for that quarterback, Packers can move down a half dozen spots and, and probably still get a good defensive tackle. Or Reggie Raglan, the linebacker from Alabama, could be there for the Green Bay Packers at 27. In fact, I think it's likely he'll be there for them. And it seems like an obvious fit on paper. They have a huge need in position, but I just don't know if they would pull the trigger. To, uh, their general manager, Ted Thompson, his track record does not suggest he's willing to make a first-round investment on an inside linebacker. But it's the first time for everything, and, and that sure seems like a nice fit on paper. Well, that was, that was exactly what I was going to ask you the next thing because I was just about to ask you about, you know, Reggie Raglan and where you think he'd go? Because I know some people have projected him 11 to 15. So you think he would maybe go a little bit less than that, or do you actually see him going in the middle of the first round? Yeah, and, and his best-case scenario, I think, would be the Oakland Raiders at 14. But I just – and it's nothing against him as a player. I think he's a legitimate top 25 overall player in the draft. It's just a, a product of the type of player he is. He's more of a physical – uh, in-the-box player rather than one of these rangy Miles Jack-type linebackers that teams are looking for these days. And inside linebackers tend to slide. Uh, you can go back over the years, all the incredible linebackers that 
Uh, Alabama had one. D'Amico Ryan fell to the top of the second round. James Laurinaitis, E.J. Henderson, uh, can go on and on. Ray Maluga. Great point. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I, I think Reglin's going to be there somewhere late first round. I wouldn't be shocked if he was still available early in the second round. And there's nothing wrong if he's a 35th pick instead of a 25th. It's basically the same range. And, and when you get to that point, it really is just coming down to team needs. There's so little difference between being a late first to an early to mid second round, or it just comes down to team needs and the priorities, and the draft order a lot of times. So, uh, so uh, even if Raglan slides a little bit, it doesn't make him any less of a player. It's just um, the reality of his situation for the type of player he is and the value he's placed on inside back. And my last question for you personally is, you know, speaking of that, let's say some of the players go second or third round pick. How do you think? They should go after that. You know, I think so many players get down on themselves and they don't go first-round pick and they don't feel like they're necessarily successful. But you've seen numerous players. Look at Russell Wilson, where he's come from, you know. And they weren't a first-round pick, but they end up winning Super Bowl championships. So just talk about what players need to go through mentally to prepare themselves. Or even if they don't get a first-round pick, they can still really prove themselves in the NFL. Yeah, absolutely. No doubt about it. There's no shame in being a second- or third-round pick. That's a huge honor. If you're a top 100 pick, the team has made a huge investment in you and and, 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 and you are one heck of a player. And, and it, it's just like I say, it comes down to the draft order. Uh, nine, uh, eight times out of ten when you're talking about those late, late first-round picks. And, and uh, going through, I've been doing it for a lot of years, and one thing I've learned is everyone thinks they're going to be a first-round pick, and everyone thinks they're going to run a 4-4. So uh, I always think about players who have the unrealistic expectations of these next few days, and I, I feel for them because uh, I, I've had experiences where players – parents are telling me oh he's gonna be a fifth round pick this team's showing interest in a third and it's like you don't have the heart to tell him he's going to be a priority free agent but but history has shown it doesn't matter how you come into the league it's what you do once you get there and and that's a cliche but it absolutely is true whether you're first second third fourth fifth sixth seventh round pick you're a priority free agent if you're working in a convenience store for a year between you had every kind of story if you have the talent, the NFL is going to find you, and you're going to get an opportunity. And, and I think that's all most guys would ask for. And, Scott, just finally to wrap it up, uh, so just uh, to reiterate, and so how many guys are you projecting from Alabama in round one? I know there's been as many as four. Derrick Henry was thought to have a chance, but it looks like he will likely be a second-round pick. How many in, the, in your final mock do you think you're going to have for the University of Alabama? You know, I, and I haven't finished mapping it out, but I got two right now, so probably three or four. But but mm-hmm. they have a number of guys who are right on that fringe. Right. So uh, you know, and, and so you're going to hear them a lot on day two. In fact, they, along with Ohio State, are going to kind of own day two of the NFL draft this year. I think, and we're going to hear those Crimson Tide and, and Buckeye fight songs uh, quite often, uh, especially early in that in that uh, early part of round two, early to mid part of round two. So. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's another bumper crop for Bama, as, as per usual. And, and the scary thing is they had three top-rated guys go back. They had three <laughs> top-50 prospects in Jonathan Allen, Tim Williams, who uh, Tim Williams, to me, is a Von Miller type of threat off that edge. I mean, he has breathtaking speed off the edge. And then O.J. Howard would have been the top tight end in this draft. So wow. uh, think of that when you keep hearing Alabama over and over and over. There should be three more, probably. And, and then Auburn-wise, Jonathan Jones, I know he did very well at the Combine. Uh, where do you have him slated uh, on your mock? And I like uh, and Sean Coleman. Those are two that intrigue me. Yep, yep. Jonathan Jones, I think, is going to be more of a day three pick. A little undersized, but fast. Uh, probably going to be more of a nickel or dime guy in the NFL. So I think he'll be selected on day mm-hmm. three. Maybe sneaks in, uh, uh, maybe early on day three. Maybe sneaks into the fifth round area. 
Uh, and then Sean Coleman, offensive tackle from Auburn, he's kind of right there jockeying in that second to third tier of blockers. I think he's going to be either a second or a third-round pick. And, and then the guy on the other side, Avery Young, I think is going to be a mid-round pick as well. Absolutely. Well, Scott, outstanding stuff as always. So, uh, so, so much knowledge, and uh, you know, we love talking NFL draft. It's going to be a fascinating process uh, to start uh, the, the, tomorrow night. But just kind of tell everyone again where they can read your stuff and when you'll have your uh, latest mock draft ready. I know you're still working on it right now. Yep, absolutely. The site is DraftCountdown.com. Everything on there is 100% free. Uh, my final rankings are up right now. I painstakingly working on them the past few days, tweaking them, fine-tuning them. So check out my final rankings, and then my final mock draft will be up tomorrow. I'll probably be pulling an all-nighter, writing all nice. of the uh, in-depth analysis. It'll be three rounds, and historically one of the more accurate in the industry. Uh, knock on wood, that, that will continue this year. Absolutely, Scott. Well, we always appreciate the, uh, the time, man. We know it's a busy time. This uh, draftee for any draft guru and uh, expert is, uh, as you said, it's all about all-nighters and uh, a lot of time spent. It's painstaking, but we appreciate you for taking the time to join Talking Ball this morning. And uh, really great stuff. Thank you, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That's Scott Wright, everybody, of Draft Countdown. Connect with him on Twitter, at Draft Countdown. Uh, and as he said, everything is 100% free. He's got his final rankings up, and he will be uh, pulling an all-nighter uh, with a with his latest mock draft. It's the first three rounds all mapped out for you, so check that out uh, at DraftCountdown.com. We really appreciate him joining us. And we're going to go on a break here on Talking Ball. When we come back, we're going to be con- back to talking some Auburn with Matthew Stevens of the Anison Star. 